This is Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Lovely to see you. Welcome back into the Blockbuster Film School, the world's greatest film school. Those are snap sounds. Oh, yeah. I'm Alex Bonner, your beloved professor here at the Blockbuster Film School, joined as always by the handsomest man in the history of the world, one headmaster, Nicholas Souder. Hello. <laughs> Coming to, yeah! And of course, we have the lovely. The talented super producer Brian Tepps. What's up? Brian is just like saying, What's up? He's in a what's up phase. He keeps saying, You remember that commercial? What's up? You guys remember that? He just keeps saying that over and over again. It's not annoying. Well, everybody, it's Blockbuster Film School time. We're going to talk. Why is your impression of super producer Brian Tepps someone annoying you with what's up? He just loves that old commercial, the what's up commercial. You know, he's never even tried Budweiser. <laughs> I've seen his tattoos. He loves Bud Light. Tattoos don't mean anything. BLs. He's been putting some BLs down. His tattoo is BLL, by the way. Bud Light, Bud Light Lime. Lime. That's yeah. nice. It's, you know, because you want a little taste of lime when you're drinking piss water. All right, so it's Blockbuster Film School time. We're going to talk movies, and we are talking about a wonderful, wonderful film director, a producer, a writer, and a forerunner in the 1980s, 90s, and today movie scene. Somebody that me and Nick and Super Producer Brian Tepps like quite a bit. Her name is Miss Amy Heckerling. Amy Heckerling. So we're going to talk about some of her movies, but Amy Heckerling, she was born May 7th, 1954. She is a baby boomer, but one of the cooler ones. Later baby boomer, right on the cusp of being Gen X. And uh, Nick, we'll start with our normal gambit. What was the first Amy Heckerling movie you ever saw? I was hoping to avoid this question. Oh, boy. Because now I have to start off the show by talking about Look Who's Talking. <laughs> Don't worry. It's all three of us because I saw it in the theater with my mom. <laughs> Luckily, I just saw it on HBO where I could wander around the house and just scream about how much I hated this fucking movie <laughs> while I was watching it. I'm not going to. No, that's a lie. As a child, I was stupid. Yeah. I'm dumb now. There's a difference. There is true. But as a stupid child, it's like. <laughs> Baby's talking. He said, lamb. That's hilarious. This is hilarious. This um, is hilarious. <laughs> the only thing worse than Bruce Willis trying to be funny is Bruce Willis is the voice of a baby in a comedy. Doing a Joel Silver impression like, hey, what are you talking about there? All the babies. Hey, it's me, Bruce Willis. Yeah, you got nice ass on you. You're like, wait, what's happening? He's a baby. That doesn't make any sense. I feel like when you remember films <laughs> from your youth, you just sort of turn them into a Joel Silver thing, no matter what it that is. That is not a joke. Brian, side with me on this. His thing that he's doing as Mikey in Look Who's Talking is kind of a New York, hey, toots, yeah, what's up? Like, what are you saying? What are you looking at me? Like, there is a vibe with, I know, but he's not doing his normal. The baby's not from Jersey. Right, and he's not doing his Bruce Willis thing that he normally does, where he's cool Bruce Willis wearing, a, like, his little weird pork pie hat. He's doing a full, hey, like, it's got this nonsense to it. because Look Who's Cotter? What is it? Is, what that movie, movie is Look is? Who's Cotter. It's like, what are you talking about, John Travolta? You want me to take a shit? 
It's, <laughs> I'm supposed to take a shit in my pants, okay? You want me to take a shit in this toilet? Like, it, that is the level of comedy we're dealing with, with one of the highest grossing movies of the 1980s. We'll get into that. We'll get into it. Let's not sway the audience from Amy Heckerling immediately. <laughs> I will say this. Some people love Look Who's Talking. Some people love the Look Who's Talking series. So if you are one of those people who is allegiant to you, I just want you to remember to not huff too much spray paint, okay? It's fun for a little bit. Those people, I doubt they're listening. So I'm not going to address them directly. (laughs) They had to sell their iPhones for spray paint. Let's be honest. (laughs) The people who love the Look Who's Talking series have been sober Every day of their life. Yes. They will be sober till the day they die. They are currently at this moment ironing a cat press on onto a sweatshirt. Yeah. And saying, hmm, that's nice. Currently, they're Moby telling people, no, I really did date Natalie Portman. <laughs> and then I gave her herpes and she was like, you had herpes the whole time? You scuzzy old you, fuck. You fucking douchebag. Nobody cares you're vegan. Uh, I'm Moby. See, you can do a good impression when you want to. <laughs> oh, I think I wrote some songs. Oh, so Amy Heckerling. Let's talk about Amy Heckerling, shall we? She's you a, don't want to talk about Moby this whole hour? Also, if you ever see Amy Heckerling in an interview, please do. She's fabulous in interviews. She has the gift of gab. And also, she was born in the Bronx in New York. So that's an entire another level of her New York accent. Her mother was a bookkeeper. Her dad was an accountant. She had a kind of traditional New York Jewish upbringing. The apartment where she lived, it was interesting because a lot of the people who lived there were Holocaust survivors. So she grew up with already this interesting world where everybody had weird, crazy stories. Everybody was up to something very interesting. But she didn't really like living in the Bronx because she was a latchkey kid. Both of her parents worked all the time, and it was 1960s New York, which wasn't as dangerous, but it was also like you get home from school and you stay in your house. You don't go anywhere. But she was very close with her grandmother, and her grandmother lived in Brooklyn, really close to Coney Island, actually. Interesting a lot of filmmakers come from that side of Brooklyn near Coney Island, and she liked her grandmother a lot, was very close with her, and her grandmother was the big movie nerd and the big TV nerd. And so whenever she got to live with her grandmother for a couple of days, her and her grandmother would just exclusively watch television and go to the movies, and that was the big thing. Her, She said that her grandmother wanted her as a child to help her buy a projection – what's the word? What am I thinking? Like a, a projector. Yeah, sorry. I want to say projectionist. That's a person. I went to film school and wanted to help her as a child buy a projector so they could watch 16 millimeter cuts. Basically wanted to buy a early 1970s VCR and have her granddaughter set it up, which I relate to. So also in the current economic state we're in, you probably could buy a projectionist. You just keep them around. Yeah. I know some people, my buddy Francisco, he was in the guild. <laughs> He's doing nothing right now. Well, you know, yeah. tell him there's always falafel around. That's true. I will call Paco. Hey, man. Um, so she grew up with her grandmother and that got her into particularly things like old black and white movies. And we'll get into her absolute insane love of old gangster movies. But she also loved old musicals and old romantic movies and old screwball comedies. Now, all of these genres will come back in Amy Heckerling stuff. 
particularly screwball comedies, particularly romances, particularly musicals, and there will definitely be weird gangster stuff. Eventually, she went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan, and on her first day of school there, Heckerling realized that she wanted to be a film director. And during their first assignment, writing about what they wanted to do in life, Heckerling wrote that she wanted to be a writer for Mad Magazine, <laughs> which I enjoy. What did you want to be when you were a kid, Nick? Uh, a failed film director. It's working out. <laughs> Nailed it. Where's my noise? Where's my buttons for laser sound? Okay. You got rid of all your sound effects when you're out of, when you're out of the country. <laughs> also on her first day of school there, she noticed that a boy next to her claimed that he wanted to be a film director. And this is a quote from her. I was really annoyed because I thought that if an idiot like that guy said he wanted to be a film director, then so could I. And certainly I should be a director more than he should. It had never occurred to me that that was even a job possibility. He put the thought in my head because until then, I never would have thought of saying that I wanted to do that. It didn't seem to be one of the jobs in the world that could be open to someone like me, which that boy turned to be Frank O'Hara. <laughs> then that boy was Steven Spielberg. Senior Spielberg. You dumb shit idiot. Yeah. No, that guy turned out to be nobody. And she's Amy Herkeling. So eat that kid. She graduated from high school in 1970 and then went to the New York University Tisch School of the Arts. Uh, if you've never heard of NYU, we talked about the George Lucas episode, which you should listen to, but there were two sides of the new school. The rise of the baby boomer filmmakers, where a lot of modern Hollywood gets its takes. And there were two. There was the schools in Southern California, and there was kind of exclusively NYU, New York University, and the Tisch School of the Arts, where Martin Scorsese... Brian De Palma, who else? Bobby De Niro, who else? Nick, who's some NYU people? Jim Jarmusch. I told that story though. Where yeah, he went he there for one semester, go, yeah. <laughs> and they put him as an alumni. Federico Fellini, yes. Agnes Vera, <laughs> Adam McKay, Adam Will Ferrell. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not true. Amy Pola. <laughs> a lot of people come. The Maras, the come shitty to Baldwin. Mind. A lot of big actors, a lot of big movie directors. NYU is one of the great conduits for art and particularly film in the United States and the world. But her parents weren't rich, so she had to take out a shitload of loans. And interesting enough that when you're faced with certain financial pressures like that, and that her parents loved her and bought her books about how to be a great filmmaker and classic foreign films. And her dad would take her to all of these weird semi underground movie theaters in Manhattan. So she could watch Truffaut movies. So she could watch Fellini movies, movies that you kind of had to really seek out because blockbuster video and later streaming did not exist. You had to find these things. But if you lived in New York or you lived in LA, you could probably find a movie theater showing these things. And it's interesting that she loved really wild foreign films as well. She got an undergrad degree at NYU, and then after that, she decided that New York was not the place to make movies, even though while she was at NYU, she was kind of ostracized because all she liked to make was musicals, really crazy 70s musicals. And have you ever seen any of her student film musicals, Nick? No, until an hour ago, I thought she was Penelope Spheres. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I have not seen any, no. They're pretty fun. They're pretty fun. Everyone looks like a 70s schlump. You know, they all have bell bottoms and bad shirts, but they're pretty fun. And it got her into 
one of the true chosen people of Hollywood greatness. She got into the AFI Conservatory, along with her friend, Martin Brest, who would go on to direct... Hua! 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 Yes, he would direct Hua. He would direct... The bigger hit for him was Beverly Hills Cop. (laughs) (laughs) I like that it got a little Seinfeld when you do it. What's the deal with the banana on the tailpipe? (laughs) Mike from Breaking Bad killed my friend. I'm going to have to avenge him. I'm not going to fall for the banana tailpipe. (laughs) He's wearing his like chunky dad sneakers. If Jerry Seinfeld played Axel Foley, I would still watch the movie. Yeah. It would not be good. No. But it would be interesting. (laughs) I got thrown through a fucking window. What's the deal with that? (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. But she moves out to LA. Her and Martin Brest are, are pals and they go to AFI. I love that band. (laughs) So while she's there, she has like mega culture shock moving her entire life, exclusively living in Bronx (laughs) and Queens and Brooklyn has never left. Literally, she was like, I had never left the city of New York. So she goes to L.A. where she has to learn how to drive, which I could only imagine watching that movie in which Amy Heckerling has to try to learn how to drive. I guarantee it's better than the last movies. (laughs) That is very true. During her second year of AFI, Heckerling made her first short film, Getting It Over With, about a girl that wants to lose her virginity before she turns 20 and the adventure she has before midnight on her 20th birthday. Have you ever seen that movie, Nick? I haven't. I lived it out myself. It is pretty fun, actually, and there's a lot of actually more clueless vibes to me in it. Oh, my God. You're just a virgin who can't drive. Oh, it- do you see what I'm yeah. saying? There's certain biographical things that That's will... That's probably why her movie stopped being good is because she accomplished everything in her life <laughs> and she just ran out of shit to take. She does kind of seem like somebody who her comedy and her artistic skill kind of comes from her life stories. I can also imagine how Look Who's Talking is sort of her grandmother explaining how babies work. You know, <laughs> that there's a kind of nonsense version. Okay. But then after that though, getting it over with was in that when we talked about George Lucas, it got into a lot of film festivals. It was very popular. Weirdly enough, it was starting to get some attention from the major studios, but then she was in this crazy car accident in which not only was she like mega injured, like she broke her leg and punctured her lung. It was basically a drunk driver ran a red light and crashed into her driver's side door. And also she had the film stock with her and the whole, you know, the ambulance takes her away. The police take her car away and the main print of the film disappears and everybody is mad at her about this, which we'll talk about weird elements of patriarchy and bullshit. But I mean, truly a weird situation, but weirdly enough, that shows up in Variety, the incident And a guy named Tom Mount, the president of Universal Pictures, starts to show a lot of interest in Heckerling. Because also Amy Heckerling, her job at the time was for Universal Television. She would help lip sync random stuff from shows. If they had to ADR something, she would come in and help lip sync. And so she also had become friends with Tom Mount. We have to talk about Tom Mount for a second. Tom Mount was also a big producer in 80s Hollywood. He would eventually produce things like Bull Durham. He was a big deal. But the crazier bit about Tom Mount was that he is supposedly the guy that Robert Altman based the player on. Oh. And 
he was a very cool character, but also had this kind of weird dark side. And when he was asked once if the player was based on him, he apparently laughed and said, oh, I've never killed a screenwriter. So there's this, like, there's this kind of, which also if you've never seen the player, it's one of Robert Altman's absolute masterpieces. It is one of the strangest, funniest, darkest movies I've ever seen and really tells you a little something about Hollywood. But Tom Mount liked her so much and came to visit her in the hospital and thought her student film was so, or her short film, I should say, was so dope that he decided, he was like, fuck it. I want you to direct this Cameron Crow property that I have. It is called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I'm a huge Fast Times at Ridgemont High person myself. I'm not going to say what shoes I'm wearing. Nick, what do you think about Fast Times at Ridgemont High? It's very funny. It's a good movie. I'm not as big a fan as you are. It's fair. But I saw this movie very young. My grandfather brought over a VCR to our house so my f- parents could watch it. And then awesome. <laughs> later that day, he liked it a lot. He liked it a lot. Was he wearing Spicoli's when he did? This? No, he didn't. <laughs> later that day, he set up a Transformers tent, the eighties Transformers tent, not fucking Michael Bay. Fuck you, Bay. Unless you want to hire us. But yeah, anyways, he sets it up and he's like, what do you think? And my response was you dick. Oh. And he just turns to my parents. And he goes, I've been called worse today. I love you as a child getting a Transformers tent. You're like, oh, you come on. Dick. <laughs> I was a parrot when I was a child. So I just repeated things. <laughs> uh, my parents thought it was funny until I started doing weird stand-up comedy, like verbatim. They're like, we got he can't be telling his teachers jokes about smoking weed in Times Square. It's not going over well. Look, he doesn't I'm, know what Times Square or weed is. Mom, I'm trying to get a tight five together, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so if you've never seen Fast Times, it's a breath of fresh air in the entire genre of comedies about high school. It's also not necessarily a comedy. It's dark. It's dark. It's Cameron Crowe wrote a book back when he was an undercover journalist. He looked like a child. He yeah. still kind of does. And so, Not anymore. No, no. Now he looks like some chubby old divorcee. <laughs> who used to make good movies and decided to make a movie with Matt Damon called We Bought a Zoo. I'll buy you a zoo. And he made another movie where he put fucking Emma Stone in brown face because why the fuck not? Tan face. Sorry. (laughs) But Cameron Crowe, the movie Almost Famous is based on his life. He was so young looking. It's basically they ripped off the idea for Never Been Kissed. You look very young. Go to high school. Report what it's like to be a high school student. I think it's kind of the other way. <laughs> no, never been kissed. They basically stole Cameron Crowe's life. That's what I mean. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So I think more people have seen that than Almost Famous for this if they're younger. I suppose. Not that, that we have a young audience. I suppose that's probably true. I YOLO. Suppose, yeah, but basically right. he went and did this for Rolling Stone magazine. Right. Turned to a book. Amy Heckling directed this movie. Right. It is very dark. It is very funny. It has. Like high school. Yes. <laughs> It has Judge uh, Reinhold yes. masturbating J- to, uh, what's her Phoebe, face? Phoebe, Phoebe Cates. Cates. Yes. I mean, there's iconic stuff. Jennifer Jason Lee, Forrest Whitaker, Eric Stoltz, Anthony Edwards, Nick Cage is in it for a second. He was supposed to play the Judge Reinhold thing, but he lied and said he was 18 in order to do the night shoots. He was 17. He was not allowed. I'm not allowed. And then, of course, 
Uh, there's an actor in it called Sean Penn who basically saves the whole movie, saves the entire thing through his, and she talks about that. But before we get into it, that I love Fast Times. I saw it, I was 16 years old. I had never seen it before. I rented it and I had seen lots of dumb movies about high school, lots of nonsense, especially at the time. There's so much, you know, road trip and stuff like that. These movies coming out there about early college, high school comedies and 10 Things I Hate About You. And they were fun and they were goofy, but they didn't actually feel like high school. And I saw this movie and I it just heat waved into me. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And the performances in it are great. And it's such a crazy movie. And also the score. She fought with the studio so much. And originally the film was supposed to have like big hits of the like radio hits of the time. And she has a quote that says, I guess a lot of people like that stuff, but being young as I was at the time, I really wanted a new edgy eighties music soundtrack. I wanted fear, Oingo Boingo, the goes talking heads, the dead Kennedys. I was one of those obnoxious teenagers that thought that the music I liked was great and everything else sucked. So um, I love the punk rockness of that. And the score is awesome. It's, a lot of pop music, which will come back in a lot of her things. It's part of her auteurship. She picks cool stuff to listen to in her movies. She has a lot of complex female characters, a lot of complex characters in genres that you normally wouldn't have complex characters. And in comedies, where the comedy comes from some of the complexity. Like I said, Sean Penn, basically, she fought real hard to get Sean Penn Eric Stoltz, according to the studios, nailed it for the character, and he would be one of his stoner buddies. Once again, Eric Stoltz being put to the side in 80s. You're not. You're good, but you're you're not Marty McFly. You need to not be Marty McFly. And, you know, you're a good Spicoli, but there's something about this one weirdo guy that is really Spicoli. There's a truth to it because Sean Penn actually is kind of a surf dirt ball. And I don't know. It's. I'm not the biggest fan of Sean Penn, particularly in his politics or his life, but... He's a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit, but Jeff Spicoli is a film icon. The fucking... All right, Hamilton. (laughs) If you've never seen Fast Times, Jeff Spicoli hits himself in the head with Vance while he's talking on the phone and says, Did you hear that? That's my skull. There is a nonsensical power to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the dream sequence in which he talks about being a, f- a professional surfer is there's an entire dirtball side of America. Doing the okay thing on a podcast doesn't yeah. really <laughs> translate to the audience. <laughs> All I need is some tasty waves and a good buzz and I'm fine. There is a character of America that related to Jeff McCauley and there's a story Cameron Crowe tells in which Nobody at the studios other than Tom Mount. This is a common story that we talked about in a lot of our sort of breakthrough filmmakers, particularly in auteurs. Everybody other than Tom Mount at Universal hated the fucking movie. They wanted it to go like as a TV movie. They hated it. They wanted to shelve it. They thought it was the dumbest piece of shit they'd ever seen. They were like, is this supposed to be a comedy? Is this supposed to be a romance? What the fuck is this movie? And Tom Mount fought and he said, no, just release it in California then. Just release it in California. See what happens. They released it in 30 theaters in California. Cameron Crowe tells this story about how when he heard that they were only going to release it in California, he was like super depressed. And him and his wife went to Hawaii 
and just basically commiserated that the movie didn't work and it was going to be a failure. And he said he came back and as they were getting off the plane, there were two kids and they were already wearing checkerboard vans and they were already saying like, there's no birthday party for me here to each other. And he was like, is this fucking happening? And the movie was such a mega hit on 30 screens. They released it world. They released it not worldwide at the time, but America wide. And it made, you know, an absurd amount of money for the time for its budget of like 15 million bucks. It made like $60 million off of a movie that they were like, this is garbage. We should shelve it. And in that same way, After that, Universal said to themselves, we need to make Amy Heckerlin make movies for us. We were wrong. I'm sorry. Which is also something that I would love to get your take on this. But here's my take. I know Hollywood is super patriarchal and super misogynistic, especially in its inception. But the one thing I will give Hollywood, it's not as though that's like a really bred in ethos so much. It's not as though... They're not Republican senators where they're saying to themselves, women are inferior. They're just morons. And the second that a woman makes a hit movie, they immediately are like, hey, cancel all of my other anybody I got going today. I need to find some lady directors. Okay, that's what's hot now. Lady directors or directoresses or whatever they call themselves. I need them now. And we need to get some lady director comedies out immediately. Like as they just, whatever's going to work and make money, it's almost more nefarious. But in a certain way, Amy Heckerling's Fast Times at Ridgemont High would open the door for a lot of things. Maybe even some of like the Penny Marshall movies. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing that Fast Times was such a surprise breakout across the board hit. And it opened a lot of doors. I don't know. What do you, uh, any other takes on Fast Times, Nick? When we're talking about one of her big masterpieces or I don't know about misogyny in Hollywood. I don't know. Whatever. You know, there's a lot of misogyny is everywhere. It's never going to end. It was a breakout hit. There was other female directors at the time, Mm -hmm. but they weren't cool though. They didn't have cool hair. They didn't have what? They didn't have cool hair. Okay, cool. I need like Pat Benatar hair. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Fast times is a great movie. It's a real movie. It's got racism. It's got abortion. It's got fucking people being lied to by pieces of shit. It's people who don't know what they're doing. It's disappointment. It's got everything wrapped all up in there. And then, you know, like you said the music's good. I think Spicoli's a little over the top, but. Fair. I've always rooted for Eric Stoltz. I like the Eric Stoltz version <laughs> of Back to the Future better. You I would. always. You're contrary. <laughs> I'm a big Killing Zoe fan, so it all goes back to that. I love it. I love that Eric Stoltz. Never let it get him down. Like he just kept making movies. He just he. Some he people, did. if they he lost, still back pissed to the, off about it. Oh, I'm sure, but he didn't. Some people would lose Back to the Future, and then you would hear about them. You know, putting a garden hose from their exhaust pipe to their car window. You know, I mean, there would <laughs> that would be. But he was Eric like, Stoltz never wrote poetry. <laughs> he was just like, whatever, man. Hey, I got paid for the two weeks. I was Marty McFly, so I'll just make another movie. But Fast Times at Bridgemont High really changes her career trajectory because now she has made a big hit at a major studio. She starts to get overwhelmed with scripts. People want her to make all kinds of goofy shit. Also, I got to toss this out real quick. Matthew F. Linotti, Leonetti, excuse me, terribly sorry, is the cinematographer for Fast Times. He also is the, the uh, cinematographer for Poltergeist, which we like, and... 
Fast Times has a great look to it. Also, I think Heckerling's movies always look really – her best movies look really good as well. Yeah. And she has a really nice eye for how to make everybody look really cool, which I think definitely adds to things like Spicoli and that the characters are dressed interesting and dressed hip. And there's a real hipness to her in general, and Hollywood knows that. So they want her to make stuff. She tries to make a CBS television series called Fast Times, which is a TV version of Fast Times at Richmond High. Did you ever see that, Nick? Well, no. <laughs> you know how uh, TV series based on a movie always work real good? Like the Ferris Bueller show. <laughs> exactly. It works great. People love it. Uh, also, I mean, Fast Times came out in 82, so I'm sure the show Fast Times came out in 83. That was the year we were born. Yes, yes. I was in no way going to go back and spend <laughs> any time watching a failed sitcom from 1983. It was not good. From <laughs> Strangely, though, also, almost all of her movies get no critical praise. <laughs> they never get critical praise at the time. Fast Times got kind of panned by critics, by newspaper yeah. critics when it came out. There is one another one of our favorites that actually got good critical praise. But that's the thing that got turned into a shitty sitcom too. Yes. So did look who's talking turn into baby time. I know. I know. We'll it's talk like about, why? Oh, that's an interesting question of, because we talked about this a little bit while we were warming up before the show, but that Steve Spielberg kind of changed a lot of the game and also imagine entertainment with Ron Howard and Brian Glazer, where once you get some power in Hollywood, a thing to maybe do is to try and, produce television shows to dip your fingers in that pool and see if you can create levels of power. And once you have a successful television show, plus a successful directing career, you now can do whatever the shit you want. And unfortunately for Amy Heckerling, she just, she got a bunch of opportunities to do it with television. It just never connected, but she tried. And I wish she would have done something different. It seems like she always took the successful movie she had made and then tried to make a TV series out of it. And yeah, she's like the Ty Siegel of filmmaking. (laughs) It's like, hey, check out this EP I made. Oh, I'm going to start a whole band like it. No, Ty, go back to the studio. No. We like that one song. We like that one song. (laughs) It only worked with fuzz. Fucking stop it, man. Come on, bro. So after Fast Times, she is, quote unquote, bombarded, her own words, with similar but lesser scripts. Always preppy kids or stories about girls losing their virginity. Eventually, though, she decides to help write a movie and make it to direct it called Johnny Dangerously, starring Michael Keaton, Joe Piscopo, Danny DeVito, Dom (laughs) and Peter Boyle. It was an airplane style spoof of gangster movies. But it failed at the box office. What is your take on Johnny Dangerously, Nick? Like, I'm on the fucking podcast, and I stopped listening the moment you said Joe Piscopo. <laughs> Sorry. I'd rather, I'd rather listen to Dom DeLuise have an asthma attack for two hours <laughs> than to spend a minute and a half watching Joe Piscopo do anything. I remember Johnny Dangerously being on HBO as a kid. Yes. I remember going, oh, fuck, it's Batman, it's Mr. Mom, it's gung-ho. Yes. It's not fucking funny. (laughs) I just sat there as a little kid going, oh, this is disappointing. I wonder if if Michael Keaton's made a lot of bad movies. (laughs) And then it turns out he did. Like that one where he plays the guy in that fucking apartment with Kim Basinger. Oh, I think uh, that's called uh, Joe's Apartment. 
Don't you knock Joe's apartment, <laughs> all right? I got a joke out of there I use on every customer who says they're from Jersey. I just go, oh, yeah, what exit? Anyways, Johnny Dangerously is <sighs> charming but not funny. Oh, it's a great joke. cast. Everybody doing their best work, except for Joe Piscopo. Joe, if you're listening, dude, just yeah. fucking yeah, eat it, you Go dig a hole for yourself. Uh, (laughs) Um, But Johnny Dangerously does not work. It didn't do well in the theaters. And I know she said it's because people didn't know those movies that it was a satire of. And I think the problem with it is that she went from making Fast Times to making an old person movie. Yes. Yes. And you insinuated this. But at the time, Airplane was hot. It had just come out. And there were these disaster High melodrama. Airport 77. Yeah, the Poseidon adventure. This cruise ship flipped over. Oh, no. Isaac, the bartender, fucking died. Right? It's nonsense. Is that Cocktail, the movie? (laughs) The original title? Yes. Isaac, the bartender's (laughs) fucking dead. (laughs) That there were these disaster movies that everyone thought was stupid, and then Airplane came out making fun of them. And they were like, well, what if we made fun of old gangster movies? The problem was old gangster movies came out like 40 years ago at that time. And so, and she even talked about how when she was writing it, it was basically to make her friend Brian De Palma laugh, who was also a nerd for these movies. Great for you two dorks. And granted, it's got a little bit of a cult following for people who love old black and white gangster movies that the jokes, I guess, maybe connect more if you, in that scary movie way where it's like, if you've never seen Scream or I Know What You Did Last Summer or something, it's like, and you see a scary movie, would the jokes work as well? I don't know. But I just watched Scream. Yeah. It doesn't hold up as well. But also it opens with Drew Barrymore talking about fucking, oh, that guy with the knives for fingers. And it's like 20 years later, it's like, dude, Wes Craven, are you really uh-huh. opening your movie with a reference to your other film? That's right. And he's like, now you're going to watch Drew Barrymore get stabbed in the boobs. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to make a lot of fucking money. But here's the thing. Like, Blazing Saddles mm-hmm. came out in 1973. John Wayne was still alive. They were still making terrible right. cowboy movies. If you make a fucking cowboy movie now, if you made Blazing Saddles today, oh. A, it wouldn't get made because it's super racist. Yes. But, like... It wouldn't fucking work. You don't right. make them. Oh, right. remember that movie from 1934? This is a satire in 1984. <laughs> you are totally correct. You, Blazing Saddles is a good example because you're right. At the time, it was funny because a lot of people had grown up with all of exactly. the bad John Wayne movies. They understood those tropes. There's no black guys in this at all. The main character is a black guy. That's already fucking that's progressive. Bit, that's, yeah. yeah, it's progressive. <laughs> yes. And it's also the running joke. Right. It's like, oh, he's black. Or all kinds. I mean, I love Mel Brooks. The fact that, like, you know, all the Native Americans were always played by, like, Italian guys or Mexican guys. And this time they're all Jewish guys. You know, it's like just messy that people like my dad already understood that that was stupid in the first place. They're like, none of those guys are Native American. No. (laughs) Like. They'll keep doing this thing with their hands. Exactly. But you're right. If you show it to someone now who didn't grow up with John Wayne movies, they're no, like, they're what saying, the all, fuck am I watching? Why is there five minutes of yeah. farting around a campfire? Right. She did that in the 80s, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't go great. <laughs> it was a fail. But she bounced back immediately in her savvy Hollywoodness. I will give her this. And she was like, I got to do something that'll get me back in good graces. Once again, Tom Mount came back to her, said, hey. The original National Lampoon's Vacation was a big hit. We want you to direct the sequel. She directs 
National Lampoon's European Vacation with Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. Also, I will say it was a big hit, made $74 million at the box office on a $20 million budget. Uh, what do you think about National Lampoon Vacation 2, the one that no one remembers? It's a movie. <laughs> it's it not is. my least favorite Chevy Chase movie. Right. I mean, I don't fucking remember. Mm-hmm. I remember Eric Idle turns into that fucking knight from Holy Grail who loses all of its limbs. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not. It's funnier than Vegas Vacation, and it's funnier than Johnny Dangerously. I agree. I agree. That's about all I remember. But I do also remember, I think I watched it at the bar the last time with the sound off and the subtitles on when I was bartending, and I remember it looking good, and myself saying- It looks good. It looks like a fish called Wanda. Mm. Snaps on that. Truly, it does. It looks like a fish called Wanda, which was around the same time, and that kind of heist comedy thing was big, which is what it was trying to be. It's not great, but it made money. Yeah. One of the only things less funny than Chevy Chase is Chevy Chase (sighs) in Europe being an asshole American. (laughs) Also- Also ages badly. Ages terribly, because guess what? In California, he's a bigger prick than he is in Europe. <laughs> and then also, what ages even worse is that Audrey is in this, and she's played by overweight actress. Okay. Who had a disease that was connected to her diabetes, so she always looked younger and always played younger characters. Mm. Well, guess what? The movie is basically a bunch of fat jokes about her. It fat shames her the whole time. She's dead. She died in 1996 because she fell into a diabetic coma and died. So her biggest movie is a movie where she's fat shamed the whole time. So that's Ooh. fucked up. Well. Also. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying it's a classic. It's a cult classic. <laughs> like if you love movies where like there's terrible foreshadowing for the actor's real life. It's like this and that lady from Poltergeist. <laughs> it's, it's fucking God awful. <laughs> Amy Eckerling is definitely playing the game. She definitely, it's interesting that as we were doing research for this, that she is kind of a disciple of Tom Mount that like, because I didn't realize that I like a lot of Tom Mount's movies, but I will say that he is a interesting character who will do whatever he's got to do. You know what I'm saying? He will do whatever he's got to do in Hollywood in order to get it done. He'll make whatever stupid movie. It doesn't matter. That's how he became the head of universal and her as his like protege. And it's interesting that at any time she was willing to make fat jokes or whatever. Like also the film, this is a quote. The film, based on National Lampoon's European Vacation, a wonky-ass title as well. The film, like many of Heckerling's films, received poor reviews from critics but proved to be very popular with audiences who just wanted to watch a funny movie. Heckerling, despite well-educated and loving the works of such intellectual writers as Franz Kafka, admits that she loves, quote-unquote, silly things, which has proven to make her commercially successful in the comedy genre. And... I, like, I mean, nobody wants to be depressed all the time. That was from Variety magazine back then, like a burn back then, like that they were like, we know you're talented, Amy Heckerling, and you're being a moron. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you have this like rebirth of the teen mm-hmm. movies. Yes. With a bunch of 30 year olds. Correct. But then that's, that's something that comes true after that, too, more so. So then you follow that up with, hey, I saw a movie with my grandma. And then you follow that up with, you sound like you're from London. (laughs) For two fucking hours, that joke. 
It was 90 I, minutes, but whatever. It was. It's like, she's too good for the room. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean, she's playing the game. She's playing the yeah. Hollywood game. In 1989, Heckerling had her biggest financial success. She hires two Scientologists and Bruce Willis to make a movie called Look Who's Talking. Wait, who's the other one? Christy Alley. God damn it. Is that where Ron Silver's dead? Probably. Oh, wait, he was a Republican anyways. Yeah, fuck it. Fuck him. But Christy Alley is a mega mayhem. Like, why do you think she's not in movies anymore? Like. Because she's not funny. She's also not funny. Like, uh, Veronica's Closet was on for like five years. Can you name anything from that TV show? No. And yeah. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but she kind of turned into that weird monster character from the Muppets. You know what I'm talking about? The one who would show up and be like, hey, what's up, guys? We're like, no. <laughs> no, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, man. All right. Anyways. Well, it's about a baby. Heckerling got the idea for the film while she was pregnant with her daughter and further developed it into a feature. She says she likes to write comedies such as Look Who's Talking because she notes that when a film is made, everyone working on it puts more than a year of their lives into making it, so she wants that year to be happy and fun. Heckerling, who loved Travolta, was ecstatic to work with him, though many people considered the film to be on the absolute down point of his career. <laughs> but she, Oh, yeah. This was like his first Pulp Fiction. I know. She was the first one who kind of saved him from yeah. completely disappearing into the ether. Or Scientology did with its Xenu magic. The film made, this is in 1989, when movie tickets cost $5. Okay. Less. Less, possibly. And there was an international market. It made $300 million. It is a movie that begins with a bunch of sperm and the Beach Boys. And the sperm swimming to the Beach Boys. To an ovary. Yes. While racing and talking shit to each other. In Bruce Willis's voice. As they attack an ovary. And then get into it. The worst Star Wars parody I've ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, Brian is showing me the inflation calculator that is around $700 million in 2021 dollars. I would like to thank Brian for pointing out how inflation is terrible. Also true. But also, look, we talked about it. I went to see it as a child. I got a tooth pulled at the dentist. My mom said, do you want to go to the movies to make me feel yeah. better? And I said, yes. And we went and we looked and saw what movies there were that weren't rated R. And I remember that there was a cardboard cutout of a baby in front of the movie theater. And my mom was like, you want to see this? And I was like, I don't know, I guess. And we saw that. So Who would have thought the high point of your day that day would have been getting your tooth pulled? You know what's funny is I was probably the target audience when I was like four years old. <laughs> I was like five. I was like literally like 89. Yeah, I was like, I, yeah, I think it was summer though. So I was like, I was like five years old. So... Don't throw on your youth in my face. <laughs> it was a mega fucking hit. Any thoughts on? <laughs> I'm going to talk a lot of shit about this through the whole episode. Do it. I am going to say this is her first complex film since Fast Times. Fair. Because this is a comedy, but it's not happy. Agreed. You have a single mom yes. who's having an affair with George Siegel gets knocked up mm. and then has to raise this child. It's just like a, a single mother's pain. <laughs> and she's forced to marry a taxi driver. <laughs> something wrong with being a taxi no, driver. I just, but literally it's the just, way the film presents it, yeah. where it's like, Oh no, I have to marry John Travolta. And he's some stupid ass taxi driver. <laughs> he's, he is stupid. 
He's stupid. And she's I like, mean, but you know what? Maybe I love his stupid ass. Yeah, but there's like, <laughs> I remember the supporting cast is great because you got George Siegel, yeah. Olympia Dukakis, Fish is in this, Abe Vigoda. Yeah. He plays her father. Her mother is Olympia Dukakis. And I remember this great piece of comedy writing Ooh. where he is trying to get a fucking splinter out of, oh, she's a Scientologist too. God damn it. You ruined Kirstie Alley. A little bit of shred. She, she had did left. it. It's not my fault. That you didn't fu- have to tell me. <laughs> anyway, so you have these two Scientologists and the one from the dancing movie is trying to take a fucking splinter out. It's like, ah, they're making all these weird noises. And she goes, oh, that's the biggest one I've ever seen. And then he walks out of the apartment and like zips up his fly because get it? He's a stupid New York taxi driver who's dick. a Dago and his pants are always down. I'm Italian. Don't it's about fucking- his dong. Yeah, you get it. Also, I imagine while Bruce Willis is recording the voiceover for Mikey, he's like strutting around like a rooster, like goddamn Mick Jagger the entire time. He's like, yeah, you like that. Oh, yeah, that's what's going on. That is honestly, I know I'm doing that dumb voice, but that is very close to the voice. Maybe Super Producer Brian Tepps will throw some of the Mikey voice in there to prove me correct. It is absolute. This is what we're going to do. Yeah. I'm going to tomorrow record a voice memo as Mikey from the movie and send it to Brian, and he's going to put that in there instead of actually there's Bruce Willis. so much weird. I remember there's a part where Mikey doesn't want to use the he doesn't want to use the toilet, right? Because he's a baby, right? Is the first one or the second one? Because he's it's he's all like, of them. Get it? It's about babies. No, it's but about he's like, them taking shits. It's fucking hilarious. The movie takes place over the course of a year of the baby's life. Right. Are one-year-olds using the toilet? I, I don't, honestly don't know. I don't have fucking kids. It definitely was like a harrowing thing about people going through a divorce. Like, I love Heckerling because her stuff is so has these complexities. Even though it's a comedy, terrible things are happening. And it makes the comedy better in things like Fast Times. But people love Look Who's Talking. Straight edge people. They want to put headphones on a baby and sunglasses. And that poster of a baby wearing sunglasses and headphones was what 80s America was looking for. It solved the gas crisis. I mean, I'm talking like it doesn't make any sense. It's not that good a movie. It kind of makes sense because who's <laughs> no, 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 hold on. Yes. Who? So it's 1989. Mm-hmm. It's still, what is that? Is that Bush or is it Reagan? It's Reagan, right? It's Bush. Yeah. It's, it's Ray. It's, it's Bush. Reagan to 88. And then it's, it's George HW Bush in 89, but she's making it in the Reagan era. And then she's making it, the Reagan era. Yes. People spending $300 million on this. Yeah. Are white suburbanite assholes who don't want to acknowledge anything else going on in the world. So they're going to go and watch a bunch of babies <laughs> talk about, oh, you're the one who's been kicking all that side. I was like, you don't want to eat all that spicy food. Yeah, yeah. There's a joke in there where the kid goes, how many babies does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the other kids at the quicksand, <laughs> quicksand, what is it called? Really? The sand pit? Yes. <laughs> the Whatever. Sandbox. Snake pit. Who gives a <laughs> shit? Movie's terrible. <laughs> Whatever like, strip club name you want to say. Yeah. Like, what? how many babies does it take to screw in a light bulb? And they go, how many? And he goes, What's a light bulb? And that made the final cut of the movie. (laughs) That made the cut. Just saying, man, Bruce Willis, his comedies, electric. Okay? Electric comedian, that Bruce Willis. Electricity kills a bunch of people every year. (laughs) It made $300 million. (sighs) It definitely looks good. 
I remember the part where she breaks up with uh, the guy from what, News Radio. Which one was he on? Uh, just shoot, just shoot me. me, George uh, Siegel. Yes, she breaks up with George Siegel after he impregnated her, and Mikey starts going around to. I did enjoy this scene, even as a child. He starts walking around to his like priceless art collection and just sort of knocking stuff off. He's like, "Oh, it was it was He Man," and then he's like throwing it on the ground. And then George Siegel's like, "You need to control your monster," and she's like, "He's your son." And even as a kid, I was like, "This scene is weird as fuck." Yeah, no, it's a dark <laughs> movie. It's like if Baby Boom wasn't funny. Right. And then Travolta's like, I don't even have a family. This- My entire family's dead. What if I adopt your family? Please love me someone so I don't kill myself. That's also literally a side story in the original Look Who's Talking. I haven't seen it since the, since the <laughs> 80s, so. I watch it every single day. Every single day. I go to Look Who's Talking Con. Can you whole- edit me out of this episode? I am. I do cosplay. Anyway, needless to say, it's a big old hit. It's a big old hit. So they, of course, because it's the late 80s, early 90s, you're going to have to make some sequels. Boy, boy, boy. Guess what it's called? In 1990, one year later, it made so much money. They, Universal was like, stop whatever you're making. Stop. We were wrong. Amy Heckerley was right. Talking babies are the wave of the future. Stop making your movie. Like, we have to put everything into making this. One year later, 1990s, look who's talking to T-O-O. Oh, yeah. They put way more money into it. The original had a budget of like six million bucks, made $300 million. This had a budget of like $40 million, okay? Made $47 million. Now, granted, at the box office, we also have to talk about this is the true era of the beginning of VHS video. And I remember a lot of weird suburban people owning many copies of Look Who's Talking or Look Who's Talking 2, that being rented at Blockbuster. I think the numbers on Look Who's Talking 2 are pretty high. She writes Look Who's Talking 2 with her husband at the time, Neil Israel, who was a decently famous producer and comedian and writer who made Real Genius and Bachelor Party, starring Tom Hanks, and also a scene in which you have to watch a weird man's head be superimposed on a naked woman talking to Tom Hanks. That's a, that's a scene in Bachelor Party. Also, Bachelor Party has one of the funniest Tom Hanks scenes, though, ever in which, because we're never going to do a Bachelor Party episode, but there's a scene in which he's trying to marry this woman and he is not rich at all. And she is super rich and her parents are super rich and they have a tennis court in their backyard and they're playing doubles. And every time they hit the ball over to the side with Tom Hanks, he immediately like cranks it like a home run and then like is like oh yeah got all that one it's gone it's gone it's truly the fact that tom hanks is a a national treasure that scene is entirely him it's not in the script that is deserving of just a a little shout out what do you think about look who's talking to nick it has roseanne barr in it she got kicked off of uh twitter and her own show because she's an asshole no comment Also, at one point, Richard Pryor was supposed to be the voice of one of the kids, and they cut him out. There's all kinds of mayhem. The studio took it over, basically. Lucas Talking 2 didn't work that well, but they still wanted to make a third one. There was still Baby Fever. Also, once again, we should bring up that she made a a television show called Baby Talk, largely written by Heckerling. Nick, what's your favorite episode of Baby Talk? Uh, The episode where they cancel it. 
That's correct. It didn't go good. Also, look who's talking now. I believe about talking dogs. Yes. Yeah. Danny DeVito and who gives a fuck? Talking about how David Miscavige. Diane Keaton? Are you fucking serious? They dragged Diane Keaton into this shit? They got David Miscavige in there. He's like, it's not a scam. It's a real religion. Separate from your family. You're a suppressive person. All right. So those are fails. But I got to give Heckerling this. All right. We're giving her a lot of shit for the Look Who's Talking franchise. That was her Star Wars. It failed. It made a lot of money. She tried to keep it together as a franchise. It didn't really go. It didn't really work. But last thing I'm going to say, the original Look Who's Talking has a few funny moments in it. It has some funny shit in it. There's a reason it made $300 million. I know we're giving her shit. There is some funny shit in it. It looks really good. And also, once again, whether we like it or not, she is able to push a button on culture. She's able to push a button on the mainstream that people want. Yeah. And she pressed that button, the entire console lit up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, okay. Uh, all, all respect, yeah. Jamie Hackerling. Yeah. I don't think if I had the chance, I could direct something as good as the two movies. The first movie we talked about, the movie we're going to talk now. Yeah. They are classics. Yes. Also, just a woman in general working the system. Fuck you out of her. Hell yeah. And may she rest in power. Hell, she's 100% alive. No, I know. <laughs> it's a future. You, know, you don't know what can happen between recording and this she episode also, coming out. We, she could save us and make amazing later fucking Robert Altman movies. Like, yeah, I hope she, she does. She is our parents' age. She is not like anywhere near the end of being able to do stuff. So her rise and fall of, her, like I said, her kind of, her Indiana Jones, her Look Who's Talking series. In 1995, she bounces back. With maybe her best movie, her masterpiece, she takes Jane Austen's Emma and turns it into a teen comedy about wealthy teenagers living in Beverly Hills. It is called Clueless. She originally was pitching it as a television show. And once again, Tom Mount at Universal Television was like, I don't think it's a TV show at all. I don't think it has enough to be a TV show, but I love the idea and I think it's a movie. I think it's a feature and I want to make it. So she makes Clueless. Nick, I what do you think about Clueless? Absolutely fucking adore this movie. Same. I love this movie. This is one of my favorite comedies of all time. It is a fucking masterpiece. This yes. is going to be number one on my wall. Yeah. But there's going to be a joke where I say, look who's talking now. I don't <laughs> want anyone to take that seriously because it's fucking Clueless. This cast is amazing. The movie looks amazing. It's super well written. It's fucking hilarious. Yes. Alicia Silverstone oh. in this movie is a goddamn comedy angel. Bodhisattva, a glorious angel yes. on earth. You have Paul Rudd yes. in what is technically his second movie, but this is the first movie that came out because he had filmed. This is the nerdy little. Uh, oh, no, nerd out. Nerd out thing. He had filmed. Halloween 666, the origin of Michael Myers. Right. But then they reshot half the fucking movie and it turned into Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. Whoa. I own both versions. Let me tell you guys, <laughs> do not waste your money at the producer's cut. They both fucking suck. But <laughs> deep cut. Clueless is a masterwork. The scene where they go on the expressway oh. is one of the, or I guess it's the highway because California. I still say we drive on the right side yeah. of the road, James Bond. Sorry. <laughs> no, because of this movie, I have a 
Brittany Murphy impression that is not disrespectful. I still remember the, the day I saw Clueless. I went to a Catholic grade school for like seven years. It was terrible, but not like one of those totally. why I'm in therapy terribles. It was just bad. <laughs> right. But it was just lame. It was fucking terrible. Yeah, it was lame. <laughs> so we were doing this thing where like you go to different classes and hang out with different teachers. Sure. And like all these groups do like weird activities like, oh, you're going to learn how to sew today. And then some one teacher. Finally. Would be, yeah. Which I still do. No. Actually, yeah. yeah it's, it's actually a, a great school It's a useful thing, but it's just I wish they would have. Anyways. Actually, when I was in school, I wish they would have just taught me shit. Like I wish they sewing would just, and yeah. cooking and chopping wood. The only wood, thing like, I remember. Doing my taxes. The only thing I remember are from these fucking weird Wednesdays. Yes. Like once a month, they're going to learn something you'd use in your life. Yeah. There was a one amazing teacher, though, who didn't give a shit. And he just showed fucking movies. And I went down there. And he had on Clueless. And I wasn't supposed to be in that class. I went in there to drop off some paperwork from another class. I was like, you guys watching a movie? He's like, yeah, sit down. I'll tell your teacher it's okay. So I sat down and watched an hour of this and laughed my fucking tits off. I had to leave. Now, keep in mind, I came in after it started. Yeah. And I left when there was still half an hour. So I missed the part Bummer. where it was clearly told that Paul Rudd was her stepbrother. Oh, yeah. So I see him. Creating an entire generation of a fetish. I'm not into it. But (laughs) I later saw that teacher after I was going to my locker. I was like, hey, how that movie end? And he goes, oh, she wound up with her brother. I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, I am not watching that. And then eventually. (laughs) They're not related. Yeah, nobody. He didn't mention that. And I missed the first like 15 minutes. So like when it was on cable, I was watching. I was like. Oh, this is so much better than I thought. Okay, this is great. <laughs> Nick is right. It is so much better than you thought. If you've never seen, I mean, it's a masterwork. It is a masterstroke. Like Nick said, Alicia Silverstone, Brittany Murphy, RIP, Paul Rudd, Donald Faison. So good. Brecken Meyer. This cast is Stacey fucking. Dash. Yeah. <laughs> She's the only exception. <laughs> Fuck you, Stacey Dash. <laughs> I guess, though, Ant-Man is the biggest one to come out of it, though. But, yeah, I mean, once again, very involved in casting, always good at casting, pulling John Travolta off the scrap heap. I mean, getting everybody for Fast Times, getting Michael Keaton just before he becomes Beetlejuice. Heckerling knows who to pick. She She knows who's right there to be. Everybody in this wound up doing very cool shit. Even that one weird kid who wound up being in just like that one Dean Coots thing with yeah. Jeff Goldblum. But still, I remember he's in it. Yeah. And it's insanely funny. Yeah. It's insanely funny and insanely well made and also has a little darkness to it. It's got a little darkness to it. It's also got an immense amount of heart. Yes. And it comes through. I am a fucking dark fucking person, <laughs> but I've watched Clueless and for 90 minutes, you know. Nothing's terrible. I love when you have a protagonist who's a mega optimist. Yeah. That that's always something that's always kind of unique in Hollywood too, you know, of the, the true optimist, the, it doesn't really matter. Now, granted, maybe misguided. Yeah. That's the other thing. She (laughs) doesn't realize until like halfway through the movie, 
she is utterly clueless. She's the clueless character. <laughs> she's the she antagonist th- and the protagonist. Yeah, she thinks it's everybody else. Like, oh, I can fix them. I can fix. They don't mm-hmm. know what the fuck they're doing. You're in love with a gay guy. Your best. You, you're this person. You should be hates you. your brother. And you should be. Oh my god, damn it. <laughs> I mean, he's goddamn Ant-Man, though. Yeah. That's also something I say a lot. Mm. Like, actually, Kato? <laughs> Dude, I adore Clueless. Fast Times and Clueless are, Two wh- thumbs up from are Mr. why Brian we're Tubbs. doing this. I still lean a little bit towards Fast Times just because of my own nostalgia and my own love of the mayhem of it. But, man, is Clueless good. It's interesting that she is so good at... Time periods of life, you know, of being a little kid, being in high school, you know, that she is able to yeah. latch on to these moments of nostalgia and kind of but that's, represent that's the thing. them. That's the thing about Fast Times is because that's more of a actual 80s nostalgia. Yeah. Whereas, shocker to so many people listening, I am a piss poor 90s kid. So when I see this Beverly Hills shit... This is an amazing comedy that is very 90s, but is so disconnected from my life as a kid in the 90s. It might as well be science fiction. (laughs) This is like if Dark City was funny. But she even talked about that because she tried to do her own kind of version of Cameron Crowe where she went and sat in on a bunch of Hollywood and L.A. high schools. And as she was doing it, it's where the idea for Clueless came to her. And she even talked about this, that that wasn't how the culture really was going. She just kind of her imagination started to go wild where she said to herself, I live in this world of people of like trying to do high fashion and try to do this nonsense. What if I set this in this world where still it's high school, everyone's dressed frumpy as shit. But the thing that she did notice was in early to mid nineties high school culture, she was like, the one thing she really did notice was that all of the girls were just constantly doing their makeup or their hair constantly, like as a tick, as a, a version of smoking a cigarette that instantly the compact came back out, looking at something, doing their lip gloss. And that that was just sort of a part of the culture. And that was enough to connect us where it was like, that's also what people in my high school do. <laughs> and then to make it a, a little more bombastic of characters of cult. Like, and as you said, for those of us who did not grow up in, but like, maybe this is what it is. Yeah. Maybe this is going on. I don't know. Like <laughs> also got to do some shout outs to the actual adults in this movie. Oh, sure. Dan Hedaya. Oh, he's a comedy fucking machine. Legend. I have a 45 and a shovel. I doubt anyone will miss you. <laughs> and then the one teacher is played by Wallace. Dad, the movie. The one teacher's played by Wallace Shawn. He is one of the weirdest looking fuckers in oh, history. Absolute yes. hysterical. And then there's the other woman who plays the other teacher. I don't know her name off the top of my head, but she's also plays the sister in Look Who's Talking. Mm-hmm. So if anything else, Look Who's Talking was made so we could have this actress play this character in Clueless. It's worth having that terrible, terrible movie exist. <laughs> They had taken away her money, basically, after Look Who's Talking Now. They gave her, once again, like a $10 million budget. It made $60 million at the box office and has become one of the great cult classics in comedy of all time. I wouldn't even call it a cult classic. This is a classic. It should be on the Criterion, honestly. It might be. I don't know. If you want to see the authorship of Amy Heckerling, you watch 
Fast Times and you watch Clueless. They are... We have to keep moving, but any other thoughts on Clueless? It's like the way I feel about Gone with the Wind <laughs> is going to be the way my kids feel about <laughs> Clueless. If you don't get that, fuck you, watch the movie. It will have problematic black characters? Um. Anyway, uh... No, it's just, it's old. I don't give a shit. <laughs> well, actually, yes, yeah, Stacey Dash. She's the problematic black character. I know. <laughs> problematic actor. <laughs> Nothing wrong with this movie. I love Donald Faison. I like Donald Faison is a fucking national treasure yes, to me. Same. Also, Brecken Meyer has like created yeah. an empire of being like a goofball, charming character. Like I also absolutely hysterical yes. on uh, Party Down. Oh yeah. man, this is Pacino. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> I'm Kevin Costner. Yeah. He's like, I always hated Pacino. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. We have to move on, though, because in the 2000s, Heckerling directed and produced Loser, a romantic college comedy with Jason Biggs and Mina Suvari. Uh, once again, kind of zeitgeist characters of the time. Jason Biggs would, after this, make a bigger franchise. Or was it right then? I don't... It was right then. Yeah, it was kind of right then. He, she Pike. called it at, like, the exact yeah. same time. She was like, this guy's got something of this moment. He has that dumb Caesar cut. Yeah. Cause I think he was in American pie and then she was in American beauty yeah. and they decided to make something bad. This is honestly where things get a little weird because Amy Eckerly is such a bright burning comet star. And then I don't know what happens. I, I think it's like I mentioned before, like she ran out of real life experiences that's why she relates to Cameron Crowe. They're journalists. Yeah. Oh, interesting. When you, like, when you can report on your own life, report mm. on things that you've seen in the field, you can write a great fucking story. Cameron Crowe, after Almost Famous, fucking bottomed out. Yeah. He has nothing new to report on. Like, he made a movie that Vanilla was- Sky. Remake. I know, but it was kind of good. It's kind of good. Honestly, I'd much rather have seen just a movie where it was Kurt Russell and Tom Cruise talking for 90 minutes. Also true. Yeah. yeah. Like waiting for Gully Hawn. <laughs> it's like waiting for Godot. Yeah. But it's just, you know, cool blonde lady. Um, so it's the same thing with her where it's like you have this masterpiece where she goes and she sits in and also it's people she knew from her past. And it's like, Moments in her own life, like mm. shares a virgin who can't drive. That was Amy Heckerling. Yeah. She is not Mina Savaro, and she's definitely not Jason Biggs. No, no. I will say, I agree with Super Producer Brian Tapps, Loser is kind of funny. There's funny stuff in it because Amy Heckerling is funny. She is funny. And she truly has the gift of comedy in her. If she wants something to be funny, it is funny. I will even make the argument that she's got a little bit of John Carpenter in the sense that she kind of grew up lower middle class and worked real hard for everything she got. And then she had a couple hits under her belt that are generating money still, no matter what, every time someone rented, look who's talking, she got some cash. And at a certain point she was like, do I even want to do this anymore? Do I even, <laughs> don't I just want to sit in my beach house in Santa Monica and like, so you're calling her an old stoner. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. and then she kind of lost the edge, and once you lose the edge and the, if you don't have the Michael Jordan, you know, I took offense to that, if you don't have the, I have to, I'm Martin Scorsese, I can't not make the highest quality, if the chip on the shoulder disappears, 
And you're like, I'm rich now, and I made stuff, and I kind of just want to. You're just going to work. And I kind of just want to hang out with my kids. Like, I can retire. I can. I think there's a little bit to that. Yeah. Of like, I, eh, I think I'm done. And uh, it happens with a lot of artists. I don't think there's any shame in it. I think that just uh, because after that, it would be seven years before she makes another movie that was called I Could Never Be Your Woman. A White Town reference? I, I think so, yeah. <laughs> starring Michelle Pfeiffer. song. And starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Paul Rudd. It, Holy shit, I know that movie. It never opened in theaters. It received a direct-to-video release, despite fairly good reviews, and it's a little bit of kind of art house theatrical release. The film had financial issues, including distribution things. And even though Heckerling dislikes all the baggage the film carries, is upset about how it was never released in theaters because she thought it was good. And it kind of messed with her a little bit. You've seen that movie? No, I know that movie. <laughs> yes, though. I also, I yeah. I actually have seen this movie. And uh, once again, kind of funny, but, you know, kind of a, uh, yeah. Uh, she directed a couple of episodes of The Office, the NBC version of The American Office. Does it say which ones she directed? Not offhand, no. Okay. I would have to dig into that. I'm not entirely because sure. Because I've seen a couple of episodes of The Office. Everyone has. We live in America. I know, but I mean, <laughs> I'm not like... Bragging. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm not the biggest fan either. I there is one episode where uh, the uh, weird dude with the beats sets a fire in the office, and then they throw a cat up into the ceiling. <laughs> There's and some- they go save bandit, and then the cat comes right through <laughs> the other part of the ceiling. And that's one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen in my life. So I want to go ahead and say she directed that without any research because I like the that. bandit episode. Yeah. All right, I'm cool with that. Four years after I Could Never Be Your Woman, in 2011, she directed a movie that um, you're going to talk about for a second. I have a lot to say. She directed the quote-unquote horror comedy called Vamps with Sigourney Weaver, Alicia Silverstone again, and someone named Kristen Ritter about two vampires living in New York City as best friends. The film was released on November 2nd, 2012, followed by a DVD release. I want to talk about that release. This movie made $3,300 in the box office. It was released in one theater in this country. Yes. In the first weekend, it made $548. The following weekend, it made a 300% jump. It made the rest of its money because that was the end of the theatrical release. <laughs> Two weeks in one theater. And if you ever see this movie, which you can on IMDb TV with commercials, the commercials are more interesting. There are some jokes. Yes. But it's so bland. Yes. It looks great, but it feels like a made for Hallmark for kids movie. Like one of those Halloween Town, 31 Days of Halloween bullshit movies. Yes. It's not good. No. Alicia Silverstone at this point is in her like 30s and she's trying to play like a young 19, 20 year old vampire. (laughs) It doesn't work. But that's the thing. Yes. With Johnny Dangerously and this, Alicia Silverstone is charming. I watched half this fucking movie today, and I just kept going, I hate this. This is not funny. <laughs> um, they hate this. <laughs> it is one of the dumbest vampire movies I've ever seen. I will say it's better than Dracula Dead and Loving It. Oh, I mean, Despite that's... the fact that that movie has Steven Weber in it. This food is better than eating literal garbage. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> This um, gas station hot dog is better than eating festering meat. Correct. 
kind of festering. <laughs> Anyways, this movie has an incredible cast. Everyone signed up because they just want to work with Amy Heckerling. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Kristen Ritter, Sigourney mm-hmm. Weaver, Wallace Shawn's in it. Yes. Again, the dude who delivers the pizza in Fast Times delivers the pizza to Sigourney Weaver in this, and then she bites his fucking head off. Get it? Literally bites his head <laughs> off. The guy from Legion is in this. Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange is in this. Yeah. Gail Garcia Banal. Gael Garcia Bernal is in this fucking movie. It makes no sense. Malcolm McDowell was in Caligula. I know, which we have not brought up (laughs) in like a year. So let's just stay away from it. I appreciate that you took one for the team and are reviewing this for us because Todd Berry's in it. Yeah, no, I love Todd Berry. I love Todd Berry. They don't let him do anything Todd Berry-ish. Oh, that's lame. This movie's very lame, and more than anything, I feel like it's a personal comment on her as a filmmaker Mm. in particular, because Mm. the Alicia Silverstone character keeps, like, not knowing hip lingo and technology and, like, what the kids are saying. And then there's one part where Kristen Ritter is leaving with some coked out vampire to go bang <laughs> and they're like we're gonna take off and she goes okay brb and Kristen Ritter goes that only works if you're leaving also this movie is so fucking dated <sighs> this is why it feels like a tv Oof. film it's so dated in the first five minutes they make jokes about snooki <laughs> house from the oh, tv God. show house and frylock <sighs> and this is in 2012 and those things were already not relevant yes I know. It's and the special effects are like event horizon. There bag. is a weird element where when your whole thing is that you have your finger on the pulse and then you kind of no longer have the finger on the pulse. And then you make a movie about how you don't have your finger on the pulse. Yeah. It's it's uh, just bad. However, okay, I gotta I gotta toss two things out here. In 2012, though, she also in that same year. She's one of the main producers. She really gets the show made. She's an executive producer. She writes a bunch of episodes for a show called Gossip Girl. You may have heard of. And there's some big Gossip Girl fans. And Amy Heckerling is, she isn't the showrunner, but she's kind of the executive producer. She's the Steven Spielberg to Band of Brothers for Gossip Girls. And what's funny, Gossip Girl, excuse me, and that it's kind of the one time her TV success actually happens. Yeah, because she did based out of one of her fucking movies. Yes, yes. And Gossip Girl works. And I've seen some episodes of Gossip Girl. Never seen it. They're pretty good. Also, I have to please forgive me, Amy Heckerling and Movie Gods. We skipped over a movie that she directed. She worked with Lorne Michaels and a couple of people who are famous now. In 1998, she directed a movie called A Night at the Roxbury. She didn't direct it. She didn't direct it? She produced it. Oh, okay. Deal. But still. <laughs> she basically got that crazy ass movie put together. Oh yeah, John Fortenberry directed it. But she and Lauren Michaels worked together to produce it. She was one of the writers on it. I have a soft spot for Night at the Roxbury. I haven't seen it in a very long time, but I remember renting it from Blockbuster and laughing my balls off at a few scenes. Yep. How could I possibly have touched your butt, sir? I'm all the way over here. All right, so that's pretty much it. That's pretty much... In 2020, there's a movie called, a TV series called Royalties. It was on Quibi. And that's the end of the filmography for the great 
Amy Heckerling. So I think she lost her finger on the pulse. And I think she also said to herself, um, I'm rich. Yeah, my parents couldn't make a fucking <laughs> movie about what's hip. Yeah. I'm giving them this laptop, which is older than the computer they have. Also, do not underestimate as producer, writer, and director on Look Who's Talking and that series and the amount of weird creeps based on the Amazon reviews. How many people still buy that movie, still rent that movie? The amount that is the check that she still gets. Oh, yeah. No, there's... Or Look Who's Fucking Talking, like... It's like a five-year, six-year difference between yeah. Look Who's Talking and Clueless. Mm-hmm. And we talk about Clueless like it's a god, because it is. It's a fucking masterpiece it of a movie. A it's master amazing. Stroke. Now, people who are parents' age, six years earlier, saw Look Who's Talking and saw their miserable lives in there somehow, mm. and they saw that fucking sperm connecting <laughs> with that oh, ovary. Oh, no, that's the end of my life. That's you the end of my life. My mom's looking at me. She's yeah. like, oh, look, it's you, you idiot. You when ruined Bruce it. When Bruce Willis gets through the fucking into it and that little tail, all those parents watching Look Who's Talking, all they hear is a jail cell <laughs> closing down on their lives and what used to be. The moment that fucking sperm lands in their ovaries, they're like, well, I have to stop doing coke in the house right. because I got kids. Or my mom literally saying things to me like, I'm so glad that I like you. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> like, the, and then realizing later, like, what that is that, like, some people had kids they didn't like. You know, what yeah, I'm no, I mean, <laughs> like, I'm lucky I'm that- like, that's kind of dark now, mom. Yeah. I'm so glad that I actually enjoy your company because, man, yeah, <laughs> if I didn't, no, I like that too. <laughs> they heard they were opening one of our restaurants. <laughs> In Pilsen, and they're like, my sister's like, what if they make Nick work there? It's so much further from his apartment. She goes, he'll just have to move home again. And I was like, why is that still a thing? But at the same time, yeah. like your mom said to you, I'm glad my parents still like me. <laughs> yes, agreed, agreed. Oh, man, the idea of people whose parents who don't like them, you know, like that's uh, that's a bummer. That's a, that's a next level bummer. It's like how my parents feel to my other siblings. Eat that, Brendan. So, uh... <laughs> Just be sure to be nice to Veronica. She's one of the patrons. Oh, no. Veronica is also one of the crown princes. Also, shout out to Joe. Yeah, hell yeah. All right. We're going to do the Blockbuster Film School dumpster. Dumpster sound. Dumpster. So, we're going to do one dumpster. It's not like a robot playing basketball. Listen, baby. I am... Hoopbot 9000, I'm going to dunk on your ass and one. Let's go into it. Nicholas, what's what's your Amy Heckerling dumpster pick? Did she direct Luke Who's Talking to? Yes. That's what it is. <laughs> also, I will, to her credit, she did direct it, but kind of Universal Studios was like. No, 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 I understand. We're going to put, hold on a second. Oh. Richard Pryor? I don't know. He's too controversial. We got to... Let's get a more even-keeled, loving, conservative figure like Roseanne Barr. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck you, Roseanne. Yeah. Agreed. And also, it's truly one of those ones where it's like, I know it was her big franchise that I guarantee she's still making big bucks on, but like, it's just in the first place. What the fuck was it? I don't know. My dumpster pick will be look who's talking now in which John Travolta tries to use his Scientology tech on a dog or something. I'm not entirely sure. 
I've seen Look Who's Talking more than once. It's... Look Who's Talking 2, I haven't seen this since the 90s. Look Who's Talking Now, I don't think I've ever finished it. Also, you know what? I'm going to throw a second one in the dumpster. I know we were being nice to it. European Vacation sucks. Yeah. It's sure. not funny. It's not good. The original one is such a wild, insane movie. Obviously, Christmas has its own insane fan base. But, man... European vacation is just a bunch of, it is such a sigh. It is a sigh. It's a, here's the thing. As much as it is a crime for the fat shaming and Chevy chase, it's not her fault. I agree. Look who's talking. Right. Two. And look who's talking now. The sole blame goes on Miss Hecker. I agree with that. I agree with that. But I I also fully support your second dumpster pick. And as we both know, Comedy is such an insane razor edge skill where everyone is fine with anything taboo if it is actually funny, right? If you say something, quote unquote, fat shaming in a movie, but it actually is well-crafted to work in the scene, you know what I'm saying? So that everyone laughs and thinks it's funny, right? But if you're just doing it as easy target, yeah, it is evil and mean. Here's, here, here's the real <laughs> like, rule. You never fat shame a fucking kid or a teenager. Or actual fat people. Or actual fat people. Right. You call John C. Riley fat, and it's funny. You don't fat shame kids. You don't fat shame teenagers, especially teenager women, mm-hmm. teenage girls. Especially. If you're going to have fat shaming in your movie, right. it needs to be from the person who's overweight. Right. Chris Farley wrote that joke. He did. Yes. Yes. It's a difference. Yeah. And- He's the hero in the end. Yes. Audrey yes. from European Vacation. I don't know if she's the hero in the end no. because this movie is about as memorable as my last bowel movement. There's a much more subtle thing of him spilling M&Ms all over the dashboard. Yeah. And saying they have a thin candy shell. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, it is a fat joke, yeah. but it, your exactly. brain has a thin candy shell. It's, that's funny. That's like an insane thing that is going on. Yeah. That... <laughs> Because like, he just let four pounds of M&M's <laughs> go into the dash. Yeah. Into a classic car, which yeah. he will ruin more of. Completely. You know, that it's clever writing that will come back. You know, that yeah. it's. <laughs> this is the, it starts with candy. Yeah. It ends with a deer. <laughs> yes. It's a fucked up thing. Yes. But Chris Farley. Right. Was willing to make himself the butt of the of, joke. Right. Yes. When you just pick on oh, the, a yes. teenage girl, Good call. you're a fucking asshole. Correct. Picking on people is not funny. I Consent. Yes. Consent all the time. And also that you're Chris Farley. You're a comedy genius. R.I.P. Or. <laughs> um, <laughs> Stop. It's too late. I'm sorry. It's late in the evening. All right. So we're going to do three. On the Blockbuster Film School wall. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School wall. All right. So, Nicholas, what is your number three? Is it Vamps? It is Vamps, actually. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Awesome. It's not a good movie. It's not funny. But here's the thing. Yeah. I haven't liked Alicia Silverstone in something this much since Clueless. <laughs> and it's because of Amy Hackerling. Alicia Silverstone's been in a bunch of bad movies yeah. since then. Uh, and a couple of Aerosmith videos. And also uh, The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah, but that was after this. <laughs> yes, I know. That was after I, this. I, I, 
And that was the weirdest thing she's ever fucking done. But here's the thing with vamps. I probably could have watched the whole fucking thing. I, that is the thing. It's even so if, weird. I agree. And Heckerling's movies, even when they're bad, they have an edge because she's Amy Heckerling. She yeah. is, even her bad movies, even those stupid look who's talking. I've watched all of them. I've yeah. seen all of them. I watched them all the way through because even though they're train wrecks, they're still made by somebody with talent and it's somehow watchable. It doesn't make any sense. And the other part of this is like, there are so many fucking people in this movie that I just wanted to keep watching right. to see who was in it. For I honestly was about to say, I thought the ghost of Dan Hede would show up. It turns out he's not dead. <laughs> he's still alive. He's alive. He's here now. He's right. Hey, Dan. Shut up. Okay. <laughs> Don't go into Dom DeLuise. <laughs> he laughs like that too. You know what's funny is, though, what you're saying, though, is almost verbatim the reasons I like my number three. And I kind of kept it close to the vest. I think Michael Keaton never looks more handsome. I think Johnny Dangerously is one of the craziest fucking movies I've ever seen. It's, it's not necessarily funny, but it's bananas. Completely bananas. It is a movie that Amy Heckerling, like I said, made to make Brian De Palma laugh. That was almost exclusively why she made the movie. And that comes through. And also that poster and that box on that video of Michael Keaton pulling his finger out and the finger is a gun. And I was like, what is this? There are certain sides of it that I still, I could watch Johnny Dangerously anytime you want. I'll watch the whole damn thing. Any of those old Michael Keaton, we watch Gung Ho, even if they're not good, it's Michael Keaton. He has a level of charm to him that has kept him as one of America's favorite human beings. The fact that that piece of shit Stole his Oscar. We will not mention this, but I'm just saying that I... I'm going to go to his house. <laughs> I'm going to break his legs. <laughs> I love Michael Keaton, and I love that Heckerling decided to work with him, and three for me is Johnny Dangerously. I get it. I totally agree with your pick. Michael Keaton has looked more handsome than Johnny Dangerously. <sighs> when he's got the curly hair as Bruce Wayne... At the party where he's wearing the tuxedo? Maybe, maybe. Maybe. Also, here's the thing. Spotlight. Dude, old. When he drops the hammer on his golf buddy. Yeah. He, like, pulls the scotch down and his, like, eyes are kind of wrinkling and he's, like, being real mean. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. Or the part where he tells fucking uh, the Hulk, we're going to run it when the story's right. Oh, yes. Or when he tells Peter Parker... That he's he's gonna fucking kill him. He's gonna kill him. Oh my god! Yes, on the way to the prom in the rearview mirror. Like, oh yeah. I mean, Michael Keaton's Michael Keaton's Beetlejuice. Yeah, he's great. Yes, he's a handsome man. I just I don't think his most handsome is Johnny Dangerously. He's so shiny in it though. All right. (laughs) Anyways, in that way though. Oh, but truly, something I like about Heckerling though, in that way that she does this, and I love it. I love it, and I wish more people would do it. Alicia Silverstone, like we said, looks... Oh, glistens like the sun. Glistens like the sun. When Sean Penn shows up wearing those shoes and no shirt with a fucking bagel in his pants, you're like, I don't know why this character is just... I had a crush on Jennifer Jason Lee my entire life because of that fucking movie. Because she appears to exist outside of reality in her hotness and her vulnerability. It is so, she does the same thing in my number three pick vamps. Yes. There's literally a scene where Alicia Silverstone's in a coffin and she's putting stuff on her legs 
which at first you think is like suntan lotion, mm. but she's an undead vampire, so it's embalming fluid. And that's one of the jokes, and I picked that as number three. What's your number two? Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I think we should just say that we're... We're, we're, flip, all, we're, we're flipping. We're flipping, flipping, flipping yeah. Two. We're flipping out. My one number and... two is Fast Times. Your number two is Clueless. Correct. My number one is Clueless. Your number one is Fast Times. Correct. We've already covered all this. I know. There's like we can't rehash it. But it's you, our walls. It's yeah, our walls. Yeah. Blockbuster. Like, it's fair. I just would love to get your your final takes on either of those movies. I think Fast Times is a statement on late 70s, early 80s, people act like teenagers don't have any problems Mm. because they're young. Right. Because you get old and you have a bunch of other problems. So when you're old, you see young people, it's like, you got your whole life ahead of you. But when you're a teenager and you're stuck in that moment, the whole life ahead of you seems dismal and hard as fuck because it doesn't seem like there's any way out of this moment you're stuck in and in reality, the moment you're stuck in is very long, but then the moment you get older, it just whizzes fucking by, yeah. and it goes by like that. But in that moment, it takes forever, and Fast Times is an accurate picture of a bunch of kids who are stuck in the longest moment of their life, Agreed. and then you have Clueless, which is the exact fucking opposite of that, <laughs> but it's hilarious. Yes. Nick Cannon's hilarious, daddy. <laughs> it's such a sad, I agree. Also, the thing I like about Fast Times, too, is that it's not a take on the 80s. It truly is there. Yeah. The real mall of the 80s is there. The real setting, the real clothes, the real thing yeah. is there. Ethan Hawke's kid isn't selling cookies. No, no. It is the, the actual ethos and also just... When Judge Reinhold quits his stupid fucking job wearing the pirate outfit and he's just throwing the fries out of the window and taking off his shit and throw it like everyone with a fucking backbone has had that moment when they quit a job like and also everyone has seen their friends, their sister's friend or whatever, get out of a pool and be like, maybe not get caught jerking off to it. And maybe the cars didn't start and maybe they didn't look like Phoebe Cates, but there's an element that. Heckerling is able to capture in a way something that we all, at least as Americans, experience. And it just comes at you in these heat waves, you know, just like, oh shit. And this, I feel the same with Clueless because then it was more of us actually being teenagers and it didn't quite feel real in that same way, but it felt awesome. Yeah. Also, in the way that Cher is fucking clueless Mm -hmm. to what's really going on around her. That's an accurate teenage feeling. Agreed. I feel like that most of the fucking time now. And I'm going to be Brian's age soon. (laughs) Also, I want to fuck Paul Rudd all the time. Yeah. Like, sorry, Brian. I love you. (laughs) Also, RIP Brittany Murphy. Yeah. Big RIPs, Brittany Murphy. Hold on real fast. I get in the zone. Yeah, do it. Yeah. That pretty perfect impression. Also, Alicia Silverstone in those outfits. In the same way, Heckerling, her use of sexuality, we didn't even really get into her, like, connections with David Lynch and all these kind of other characters that pushing a little bit, just just pushing a little bit of sexuality into her movies and not in some sort of vulnerable way, in a truthful way, that there's sexuality in her movies, but they're not like, yeah, tits, you know? Like, occasionally there is, but that's the way the characters perceive it, you know, that that's 
that she understands these different layers of sexuality and these different layers of romantic interaction and these different layers of how Scientology ruins you and you think you have to actualize even as a child. I'm not entirely sure what was going on with Lucas talking or what that point of that movie was. I think more than anything, it was just fucking weird Amy Heckerlin, like yeah. postpartum depression <laughs> and just being stoned around her kid and staring at me like, yeah. I made that. Yeah. What is she thinking? I feel like that's what she's like with all of her movies. So that's maybe why there's always a TV show well, later. Well, get she around. Gets, I get around. All right. That's it. We, we cast me for the next episode. If you sing the Beach Boys, I'm out. <laughs> the sperm is coming. Yeah. My life is over. <laughs> And it's the guy for fucking just shoot me. Just George, fucking blew his load in you. George Siegel <laughs> is a funny guy. He is. It's the best scene when he's yelling at baby Bruce Willis and baby Bruce Willis is tearing his office apart. It's by far the funniest scene in that movie by leaps and bounds. All right, team. I think that's uh, our episode on Amy Herkling. I think we did a good job. I know Nick Souter the headmaster at the Blockbuster Film School did a good job. I know for a fact that super producer Brian Taft did an amazing job. And I know that I did a mediocre job as always. I'm Alex Bonner. I think you did better than mediocre, but I also don't comment on episodes at all. Actually, now that I think about it. That's fair. That's fair. I am wearing Spicoli's. I love you guys. Please uh, follow us, particularly on Instagram. That is where we are most active. Also, we have a Patreon. If you want to throw us a couple bucks, feel free. Or just hit us up wherever. And we love you guys. And the fact that you listen. Give us money. Come on the show. Yeah, for real. Come do what you want. Come say what you want about George Lucas. Yeah, no, for real. I'll debate the shit out. George, you want to come on the show? Let's go, baby. I'll fucking give you some of my Taco Bell collector's cups. I got some. Also, Dan Hedaya, you're alive. Yeah. Answer my emails. Yes. I know you're alive, motherfucker. We've been looking in your windows. All right. So that is the end of Blockbuster Film School this week. We'll see you next week. Prepare yourself. There won't be homework this week, so you can party. But uh, we heart you. And uh, may the force be with you. And uh, do drugs. Do whatever you want. We'll see you next week.